0: Well, good evening. We are grateful for your presence this evening. Appreciate Brian leading that song, especially in light, of course, of our lessons over the last few Sunday mornings. Appreciate the good comments that you've had. Appreciate this congregation so much for your willingness to consider those kinds of things. Even as we had our care team meeting this afternoon, I know that the care teams have been talking about the things that we're doing, especially with house-to-house, heart-to-heart, and the information we're getting and the opportunities that lie in front of us to try to reach out, To our folks in the community, to our relatives, to our friends, to people that we may not even know yet, but the opportunity that we have to try to share the gospel with them, and hopefully we will do better maybe not that we're all doing bad but better at working together to spread the gospel to take advantage of all those little opportunities that we have this congregation does a great job of taking advantage of those or creating those in various forms whether it's working uh, with the thing things downtown or the things that we did even this year uh, in our community and those types of things but we want to do more we want to try to reach the lost souls with this saving message and we appreciate the singing of that song just then. If you've got your Bible tonight, you can be turning to the book of Ezra. Uh, if you don't have an outline in front of you or a bulletin in front of you, and you already know that's where we're going to be going, we're going to continue our book of the month club, and tonight we're going to talk about the book of Ezra. Uh, several of you have given good comments in regards to these lessons as well. Some of you may not be that excited when we turn and look back at some of these, uh, but hopefully it's been encouraging uh, to do this. We have started on Wednesday night. Many of you have your own Bible classes already. We understand that. We certainly appreciate the ladies' class and the things that go on there. But it, uh, if you would like to be with us on Wednesday nights, we have been begun looking at an overview of the Bible and the encouragement that we can take from that. And so we're behind a little bit in the sense that we've been talking about Genesis, over the last few weeks. We've not worked our way up to where we are in our our Book of the Month Club series, but I hope that it is beneficial to you to continue this storyline, to think about how all of these things are not only pointing towards the Christ, but as we think about in Romans chapter 15 and verse number four, that whatsoever things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. They're there so that we can really get some lessons, some good lessons for us. Because while certainly there is a New Testament, a new covenant, a new way of salvation, if you will, uh, mankind has always been the same. And we go back and we talk about the period of the judges, and we talk about people who would turn to God and turn away from God and turn back to God, and we see ourselves mirrored in so many Old Testament people, so many Old Testament characters. And so it's encouraging for us to consider these things. The book of Ezra is one of those that when I thought about tonight, there, there were so many ways that we could go. There's so many rich nuggets, if you will, in Ezra to consider in the grand scheme of things that we're really going to just have to kind of do our best to condense it and get through it here in about 30 minutes or less. But when we think about the big picture of things as well, if you've got your Bible open, to Ezra, my Bible's just the same opening, and yours may be. Where do we leave off? Well, if you look at Second Chronicles chapter 36 specifically verses 15 through the end of that good book there, we see that the children of Israel have been carried away to Babylonian captivity. We think about there was the first carrying away of the northern kingdom. This, there is the carrying away of the southern kingdom into Assyrian captivity, then Babylonian captivity. So this is where we've left off. This is where we talked about uh, back in January, and this is where we're actually going to pick up. Now, I don't know how many of you have really looked at the Old Testament books before, specifically in chronological order. But if you're like many of us, when you go to chronologically, based off what you look at when you open your Bible, it's kind of frustrating at times, right? Because we look at it and we say, well, no, Ezra comes after 2 Chronicles, and there's some benefit to that. But when you start talking about the prophets that we'll come to, and you start moving them around based on where they were and where they worked, or really when they worked, then Ezra, rather than being towards the front, sort of falls more toward the back of the chronological order of Old Testament books. My kids are particularly frustrated sometimes. They say, you know, Job, Job probably, you know, lived during the time of Genesis there towards the beginning. They say, but that's not where Job is. Job is towards the middle, towards the back, right? Yes, I know, but that's the way it is for us in our English Bibles. But Job lived then earlier on in the history of the world, in the history of the earth, so Ezra really comes along sort of chronologically here as we read what takes place at the end of 2 Chronicles, but there are some other things that, are, that could be interjected in, in here, and we're going to talk about one of those tonight, and we'll come to that in a few moments. So first of all, uh, big point here, who's the author? Well, it's believed to be Ezra. I know, shocking there, right? But what's interesting when we consider this is actually the book doesn't actually say that. Now, when we talk about these, and you're familiar with this because we've been doing this for a while, but but sometimes we come to things and we're, we say, well, it doesn't say exactly. In Ezra, there is something a little interesting, and I added this note in. If you go forward to Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 27, and then you read through chapter 9 and verse 15, You see a very interesting word in verse number 28 maybe is the first one. So I. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 27 through chapter 9 is in the first person, whereas the rest of it seems to be in the third person. What does that mean? Well, it's my standard answer. I don't really know. I'm not sure 100% what that means, but it's interesting here. There is some first-person writing, and then there's also some uh, third-person writing. And so there's this section here, although the Bible never says for sure, such as it does with Paul in the New Testament in places. This is Paul. This is my letter. This is my writing. So we believe the author, and many people believe the author to be Ezra, although the book doesn't exactly say Looking at one theme in particular here, and it's kind of a lot to take in as you read through it there, but if we tried to break it down into just one sentence there, one screen, one slide, the theme might be the return of two groups of Israelites from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and reestablish the observance of the law of Moses. Now, there's a lot there. There are two groups. We're going to come to that in just a moment. They're going to return from captivity back to Jerusalem, But you also see two things that are going to take place there. Two rebuildings. One in this slide says rebuilding. The other says reestablish. But we're going to come back to that idea as well. What we see here, one author or one person called it, is a second exodus. I thought it was kind of interesting. A second exodus of the children of Israel. What was the first exodus? Well, it's exodus, leaving the land of Egypt, right, with Moses. They're going to exit the land of Egypt. They're going to begin wandering around in the wilderness And those things that take place there. This might be a second exodus. Where are they leaving? They're leaving Babylonian captivity. Now what's interesting here is this is much less of an impressive exodus than it was in the book. Because in the book of exodus, as we talked about Wednesday night for just a few moments, we've got millions, if not at least a million people, all traveling together. All moving in some sort of accord, moving, leaving Egypt. But when it comes to Babylonian captivity, there's only actually a small number that leave with the first leaving, the first exodus uh, out of Babylonian captivity. So this is sort of the theme. This is sort of a statement that summarizes what's going to take place. We might talk as well about a purpose. If we wanted to talk about a purpose, we might say that the book of Ezra is there to demonstrate God's faithfulness, faithfulness. A biblical concept. Why is it important that we would look back at the book of Ezra? Because we begin to see a faithful God. And I've got a passage for you there, I believe. Yes, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse number 10. Because it is in the writing of Jeremiah here where the Bible says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. We don't have time tonight to go into all the details of prophecy. You're familiar with prophecy and how it works. The amazing way in which God can have a man, a a prophet, a spokesperson for God, as it were, speaking for him, giving his word to the people. And he can at one point say that this is going to happen. And we can go forward and see that 50, 60, 70, hundreds of years later, it is going to take place. We read the words of Jeremiah. God says, this is going to happen. That after 70 years, you will return from Babylonian captivity back to this place. And what happens? They absolutely do. Demonstrating God's faithfulness. Noah understood God's faithfulness. Joseph understood God's faithfulness. The people in the New Testament that we will come to, that we know so well, understood God's faithfulness. Because God was faithful in Genesis and Exodus. God was faithful in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in other places, God is faithful in the book of Ezra. But it's encouraging to think about that. It's hard for me to ask you or for us to understand to put ourselves in the, the shoes of the children of Israel. What was going on? It's hard to understand. We are very thankful. As many of our men pray from time to time, we are very thankful for this country that we live in, for the freedoms that we have. We have a hard time considering what might have happened if one of the world wars had gone the other way. Or what if we had been carried away as a nation of the United States of America into captivity or ruled by another country? We're thankful for that. We're thankful that all we have to do is try to consider it, that it didn't happen or it's not real. It's hard to understand what these people were going through, but yet here they are. They've been carried away into captivity. They've suffered through that. But now they're going to begin to return and there's actually going to be a few of these things that are going to take place. So tonight, the contents are very simple, if you will. The first big breakdown, if we look at the book of Ezra, is Zerubbabel's work, chapters one through six. Now it's interesting, I forgot to write down the exact reference, but Zerubbabel is an important person because it is actually in Matthew chapter one that we read his name as well. In Matthew chapter one and in verse number 12, it says, and after they were brought to Babylon and in Matthew chapter one, we continue that genealogy that we all talk about how much we hate trying to pronounce the names and read through it, but listed in that after they were brought to Babylon is Zerubbabel. And so we come to the book of Ezra and Zerubbabel is authorized in a first return that is authorized by Cyrus here. Here. Zerubbabel is authorized by King Cyrus. And if you've got your Bible open, I know I've mentioned other passages. But back to Ezra chapter 1, we see that it is King Cyrus, the king of Persia, in his first year that is going to make this authorization that some of the children of Israel or the children of Israel can return. Now, one more time, I have to ask you, if you want to put your finger there, look in Isaiah chapter 44. Because I mentioned prophecy as briefly as I could for just a moment. But when it comes to Cyrus, there is a great study. A great study when it comes to Cyrus in the Bible. Not just in Ezra, but when we look also in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse number 28. Isaiah 44:28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be Now we know there were no chapter breaks. So if you turn there, you look in uh, chapter 45 in verse number one, you see his name again. But as I told you at the beginning of the lesson, we are frustrated at sometimes at the chronological order of the Bible, Isaiah, which you turn backwards to, if you will, in your Bible, that statement in chapter 44 is 150 years before Ezra chapter one. In Isaiah chapter 44, God makes the statement that Cyrus, God doesn't say some person. He doesn't say, well, I think it'll happen in the future. He says Cyrus. King Cyrus is going to say to the temple that the foundation should be laid. And what happens 150 years later, we read it here that in the first year of Cyrus, not some person, not somebody. I'm sorry, I messed the name up. King Cyrus, the children of Israel are allowed to turn back into the land of Jerusalem. Wonderful, wonderful studies when it comes to these things of prophecy here. And as was said there just a moment ago from Isaiah, the foundation of the temple is going to be laid with Zerubbabel leading these folks back. Now, I didn't have time to list it all, or I didn't want to take the time to try to list it all and have you read it, but if you've got your Bible there in Ezra chapter 1, look down in about verse 9, and you begin to see, really verse 7, excuse me, that King Cyrus brings out the articles of the house of the Lord, that who? Nebuchadnezzar. Where do you read Nebuchadnezzar's name? Daniel. Where does Daniel fall? Okay, we're going to have to stop with it there, all right? But Daniel is not there either. But here, Nebuchadnezzar has taken these things, King Cyrus is going to authorize that they're brought out and they're returned with this first return of the children of Israel. And notice down in verse 9, you see these things. 30, 1,000, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins, and so on and so forth. Then we come to chapter 2. What do we see? Another one of those listings, another one of those group of names that we want to avoid, but these are the people the number of the men of the people of Israel, Ezra chapter 2 and verse number 2 there, who are going to be returning. And you notice if you go forward to the end of chapter 2, it says, including here, The whole assembly in verse number 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers and there's the horses and the camels and all these things are listed there. And so when you go home tonight and you're wanting to go to sleep, You don't have to listen to the preacher. You can just start reading in Ezra chapter 2, all right? But there it is. All these things are listed there that made the return when Zerubbabel leads this group back to Jerusalem, and they're going to lay the foundation of the temple again. Now, when we move forward, and this is the same contents here, this is not the next section, but while they begin to lay the temple, there is resistance. We come to chapter 4, and the temple work is stopped. Due to their enemies' efforts, they're going to harass them, they're going to hound them, and they're going to make it difficult until the work is just stopped. We're just going to leave it alone there. And the rebuilding of Jerusalem is opposed. Now there's an interesting lesson here, and I didn't add this into our end lessons at the end of the lesson here, our end applications, but there's a powerful lesson here about preaching, if you will. Look in Ezra chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, preachers, if you will, we say sometimes, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shadiel, and, excuse me, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them helping them. Through these prophets, the work is being done. Move forward to chapter 6 and verses 14 through 16. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius or Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And it continues on through chapter six talking about the children of Israel doing these things. The end of verse 16, they're celebrating the dedication of this house of God with joy. There are prophets, there are preachers, there's the message of God and there's good work being done here. They're able to build and begin building this temple the foundation and the temple, and there is celebration and dedication because this has been done. And so that leads us here. This is a continuation of that same slide. The work is resumed under King Darius, or Darius, and it's finished 20 years after it began. Now, let me go ahead for the sake of your outline and the time tonight. The second section of contents in the book of Ezra is Ezra's work, very simply, chapter seven through 10. Now, what's interesting is, I feel like I'm as confused as I may be confusing you guys. Zerubbabel's work, Zerubbabel leads the people back. Ezra leads the people back. The difference between the two, though, is 60 years, and many people believe that in those 60 years is when the book of Esther takes place. When Esther rises to power is during the time between chapter 6, if you will, and chapter 7 when Ezra leads the second return. When you do the history, when you do the study, there's about 60 years there between Zerubbabel and Ezra, and many people believe in that 60 years, that's when Ezra, or Esther, Esther came on the scene, and she's going to become queen during that time. And we're familiar with that, but we'll come to that book, that good book later. So Ezra is authorized by King Artaxerxes to return with a second grouping of people. And what's interesting is, and I ask you to remember this about the theme, You remember our theme slide just a moment ago, there was two rebuildings. One talked about rebuilding the foundation of the temple. The second talked about reestablishing God's worship to God or service to God. Here it is. In the first return with Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. In the second return with Ezra, Ezra is rebuilding Israel's spiritual condition. He's not worried so much about, or he's not going to go on and take on this rebuilding of a temple or the temple wall or anything like that. He's going to work on rebuilding their spiritual condition. He's going to institute reforms. And some of those we're going to come to in just a few moments. So very quickly, let's look at a few key verses before we make some application. The first section of verses is Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. This is again the very beginning. We already touched on it just a few moments ago. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, there it is, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet might be fulfilled. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. We really don't have time tonight to get into all of those political ideas or all of those national ideas. I understand how we can get caught up in that sometimes, but we must understand that if God can use King Cyrus, who might have done evil things and may have been a pagan king in a sense, but yet was allowed and used to fulfill these purposes and these prophecies, then we never know what lies ahead. We never know exactly what might happen, and we need to put our trust in God. Ezra chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Ezra chapter 7, these verses here might be the theme as well. This might be the thesis statement, if you will. It says, For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonium. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. By the way, this return by Zerubbabel and Ezra, it wasn't just kind of a hop, skip, and jump over the mountain and into Chattanooga, right? It was much more than that. It was going to take some time. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra, notice, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We're going to make application from that in just a moment, so we'll move on for the purpose here. In Ezra chapter 10 and verse number 3, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So again, jot it down as, a, as an interesting note there. But let's come back and talk about this in just a moment with some practical lessons. Actually, I got my slides out of order. Let's talk about it right now. There are grave consequences, if you will, in a practical lesson for marrying the wrong person. Notice that again, a practical application. There are grave consequences for marrying the wrong person. All right, preacher, who's the wrong person? (laughs) What's the wrong person? Well, I can't tell you for sure. I can't tell you that the Bible describes time and time again the importance of marriage. God's plan for marriage. Some of you may be married to a person who you say, when we were dating, I never thought they would darken the doors of a church building. And now they may be serving faithfully. You may know someone like that. That you'd say, well, they were the wrong person, but they became the right person. So who's the wrong person? I don't know. But it does describe for me the importance and the understanding of how important marriage is to God. What we find in Ezra chapter 10 is that the people make a confession, if you will, of improper marriages. We see it time and time again from Exodus and even moving forward that God says stay pure. Do not intermingle and then do not marry these pagan people because you're going to have problems. And what do we see? the people intermingle and they marry the pagan people and then they've got problems. And so in Ezra chapter 10, we see that this has happened, that the people have been doing this and so now they have a problem as as God recognizes this. Notice in verse number one of chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very Bitterly. And they're going to talk about in verse number two trespassing against God, taking pagan wives. And so Ezra does something that wouldn't be very popular, especially in these United States today, but he banishes these pagan wives and their children and sends them away. There are grave consequences when we marry the wrong person. I don't know that's always as clear cut as we wish it would be, but we must be careful in marriage. For many of us, we've made that decision, but we must be careful for our children as we teach them the principles of marriage. I think about in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 21 through 25 or, or really several sections there in Ephesians chapter 5 as God talks about husbands loving their wives, wives submitting, it's all based upon Christ and the church. We must get back to what marriage was meant to be, the institution that God had from the very beginning of one man and one woman with one God, by the way, factored into that. We often talk about a marriage being two when really it should be three with God included. We think about the importance of that. The wrong person at the time might be made right by coming to the Lord and becoming a Christian. So I don't think it's as cut and dry as we wish it would be. But let's understand the importance of marriage. We see it in places like Ephesians 5 and the New Covenant, but we even see it in the Old Testament. And we can learn lessons from even the children of Israel and the mistakes that they would make. A second lesson here, and this is the one I believe that's in your outline there. There are disastrous results from failing to study God's word. Disastrous results when we fail to study God's word. And when we fail to study, we simply cause ourselves grief and struggle. You remember in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 13, Isaiah says... By the word of the Lord, therefore, my people have gone into captivity. Why were they carried away into captivity? Because they have no knowledge. Because they have no knowledge, their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Why is it that the people found themselves in captivity? They did not heed the word of God. God doesn't speak to us in the same way by the prophets, but he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We understand exactly what we need to do, and there are simply, and I like that word, I borrowed that from someone else's idea, but disastrous results when we fail to study the word of God. When we fail to study and apply the Bible, these are the problems that we will have. We will cause ourselves grief and struggle. And in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 7, Relearning the law of Moses, as we talked about a moment ago from Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, he was setting his heart to do that. Relearning the law of Moses was going to take priority. These were the reforms, part of the reforms that Ezra was going to set up. And it is vital to these people, just as it is to us today. What do we say oftentimes? It's easy for us to sit back and point the finger, and what do we say? The problem in our country sometimes began, we say, when we take took God out of the schools, right? We talk about prayer, we talk about the Bible. Kind of hard to argue with that in some ways. When we think about relearning the word of God, trusting in the Lord, following his word, it is very, very important. It was in Ezra's day, and it certainly is today as well. One more practical lesson here, and the lesson will be yours. Sin always brings sorrow. By the way, I did not copy this from a previous lesson, but it pretty much says this in every one of these book of the month clubs that we talk about. Sin brings about sorrow, but godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. In Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 13, the Bible says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Notice when we think about, I didn't put this on the screen, I added it to my notes, but notice when we think about the sorrow that sin brings, we get a physical description in Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. So mothers, how many of you have ever been driven crazy by your kids that you plucked out your own hair? Okay, not your beard, but your own hair, right? I mean, and astonished. Have you ever felt that way? This is exactly the way that a man of God feels when he looks at the people and all he sees is sin, and Ezra's going to say, so much to this point, I felt like ripping my own hair out because of how sorrowful and astonished I was at this sin. Sin always brings sorrow. It always, always has and always, always will as long as this earth is standing. But as we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, there is repentance. There is a changing of the mind that can lead unto salvation. Godly sorrow Uh, Not just, I'm sorry, I, I wish I hadn't done that, but godly sorrow, true repentance, changing of the mind, leads to and can lead to salvation. So how about that? As we conclude tonight with that practical application, how about that? Do you stand in need of repentance tonight, either in the first way of becoming obedient to God's Simple plans of salvation. Repenting of your sin is a part of that. Changing your mind. Determining that you will no longer live and be a slave to the old man of sin and death. But you you would go down, be crucified as Christ was in a sense. Be buried. Crucify that old man. Be buried in in a watery grave of baptism. Rising again to walk in newness of life. Ready to lead that new life. Ready to be added to the church by the Lord. Ready to be faithful unto Him. Studying His word. A home in heaven awaits if you will do that. But we must continue to be faithful. Just as the children of Israel had time and opportunity, they would be faithful and they would turn away. And they'd be faithful and they'd turn away. We see ourselves in that mirror. We realize that we do the same thing. Maybe you're in need of God's second law of pardon tonight. You stand in need of repentance, confession, and prayer. We're thankful. We're thankful that it wasn't a one-time shot. He doesn't strike us dead every time we mess up. But he gives us an opportunity. That through our own realization, recognizing our own sin, we would come back to him. We would take advantage of that second law of pardon. We would walk in the light again as he is in the light so that our sins can be continually cleansed. We can be found faithful. We can have a home in heaven. But just as it was for Ezra and as it is for us today, it is your decision. It's my decision. It's our decision. And if you need to make a change tonight, would you do so as we stand together and as we sing?